I think the job of the teacher, you know, is not to tell people what to do um, in Zen. The job of the teacher is actually to help people stand on their own feet and be willing to respond completely as their life circumstances require of them. So we're not fostering a dependence, um, but rather an independence, if you will. Karen Ryuku Kemp Roshi began practicing Zen in 1971 at the Rochester Zen Center with Philip Kaplo Roshi and later with Tony Packer. In 1997, Karen received Jukai from Shishin Wick Roshi, Dharma heir of Taizan Mayazumi Roshi, at the Great Mountain Zen Center. She completed her koan training in 2005 with Danan Henry Roshi at the Zen Center of Denver and served as an assistant teacher until receiving Dharma transmission in 2010. Karen also completed her training with Shishin Roshi and received Inca from him in January of 2019. Today, she serves as one of the guiding teachers of the Zen Center of Denver. And for over 20 years, Karen worked as a family physician while raising her family. She's also an accomplished artist. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Kwanam Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Kwanam School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership on the homepage. Karen, I was listening to a number of your tishos, your your Dharma talks. And so in my personal life, my my private life away from the podcast, I uh, work as a Unitarian Universalist minister. And I was really struck by the quality and the character of your talks in the sense that they really struck me like sermons. They were so meticulous. And, you know, I think a lot of Zen teachers, they have an idea of where they want to go and they sit down and they just talk. And what I was picking up from you was just a a real, there was like a process that seemed to be there. Maybe, maybe you're just a natural sort of preacher, but um, it, it sounded like there was a lot of work that was put into these and just from a preacher perspective, they were so well-structured and I, I don't know, I just, there was just someone appreciating the craft 
of what you were doing that was that I really liked. And well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you they're not easy. Um, occasionally there's one that uh, just honestly just flows. It's mm-hmm. very straightforward. But some of these are just a bear. I mean, you you start and uh, and write something, you're working towards something, and then it turns out it's just dead. It doesn't actually um, point towards what you're trying to do, which is all of these Dharma talks are really to awaken the mind. And so if you get lost, and, and to encourage people, but if you get lost in something sort of didactic, uh, pretty quickly, um, you know, everyone's asleep. And you are too. Yeah, it's it's... I guess what I wanted to say was I didn't feel that way when I was listening to them. You were able to capture something that was alive. And yet, I, I think for a lot of people, they hear teachers who are just speaking. They just sort of speak. And you, there's, there was just such a great rhetorical, I, I don't need to hone in on it, but it was clear. You, you also do a lot of work with, um, koans and stories that you you know you do these quite deep dives into them and there were two that i i don't know if it's just because it's the season of life that we're in right now but um there were two that i thought that really stuck out to me and the names are a little different than how i know them but it was um julien calls master oh and um and then uh i i know it as nanchan kills the cat yeah but um nanchan kills the cat that's it yeah (laughs) he kills it (laughs) he does but i want to start with the the other one i know it as sogam young um calls master and i guess for me one i really liked what you had to say but but I feel like there's this, the world is calling right now and, um, and we have to answer. Like, I feel like the, it's like, there's a real reason for this koan right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you want to maybe say a little bit about what your experience is. Obviously not, you know, we don't tell people what the answer is because oh, you want to keep it alive, but like why why would you think that this thing is important to you anyway? And maybe it's not I, I know what you said in the interview. You were like, I don't even really like this one. <laughs> but but it just feels like it's such an important one for right now. Interesting because I, I actually um don't remember my Taisho on that koan, but that's <laughs> that's, that's okay. Yeah. That's, I think it was from a couple of years ago, actually. It was like 2017. It would you had just come from the woman's march in in Denver. And so it was almost like the world is at, you know, how are you responding? And I mean, here we are in another situation, like how are we responding? Right. You know, the truth is the world is always calling to us. I mean, that's what, you know, it's, that's this issue of the 10,000 things advance and replace the self. You know, the world is always calling to us or, or the, the sense that the Dharma is always being preached. Um, and so the question is, how do we listen? 
are we quiet enough to hear it? And then what is our response? Um, sometimes the response is to hold back. But it seems to me, and particularly right now, and by right now, I mean this period of time, it's a period of years, not a period of, uh, you know, maybe a year or a few months. Um, uh, it seems to me that there is so much calling for our response. And, um, and so how do we enter into, um, the issues of our day in a way that is, um, uh, ethical and courageous and responds to the, the great suffering, which is really all around us. And, um, if we don't, then in a sense, our practice is, has a deadness about it. Um, so that's, I guess, one thing I would say. So when you were first, how was your life moved through this koan? Because another thing that you've talked about in your Tesho or like, you know, you start out and maybe you actually, you know, get the answer, Right. But then there's a sort of shakiness and then you keep working. And I'm just wondering how this particular <laughs> one has matured with you over time. Um, well, so I'll say a few things about koans. Maybe that will be mm -hmm. helpful because I love the koan tradition. Not everybody uh, who works with us, and I'm one of several teachers at the Zen Center of Denver, but not everybody works on koans, but... but um, I find the koan tradition beautiful and alive and um, pertinent. And um, um, every koan expresses what we could call one mind or no mind or whatever whatever we want to call it. It's there's no one good good word or one good name. Um, but every koan expresses that. And it's a question of finding how that moves through the koan. But each of these koans are an expression of that. And so, um, to some extent, when people work on a koan, they'll be expressing from their life of that moment um, and a particular time. And to some extent, they'll also be expressing uh, something that is uh, universal and does not change. And and that's always been true uh, for me as well. And the koans that I love the best are the ones that have an essential, essentially mysterious quality um, that is always, you never, uh, you never nail it, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, you never really pass a koan. Um, especially the big koans, the major koans. We never pass those koans. Those are koans of life. And so we may move on, but there's always something more that we can discover or appreciate uh, about them. Is that kind yeah. of what you were saying? Yeah. And so I'm just curious in terms of, you know, in this great moment of calling, and, and I agree with you, the world is always calling, but it, there, does, there seems to be some this time feels particularly bound in so many ways, right? We're in the middle of this pandemic. We've got uh, an election in the United States that is, um, 
regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, it's, you know, everyone feels like it's life or death, you know, um, or win or lose. And how are you inviting your students when they look at a koan like this, or even, you know, Zen itself, just to respond? Like, what what's your relationship with them about that? Well, uh, for some of these koans, of course, there's a uh, specific answer um, mm-hmm. that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. But we also work with individuals, and we know that person. Um, just this morning, I was working with somebody who I know really well and who gave me uh, what I would consider to be a stock answer. <laughs> very, very, very acceptable answer oh, yeah, uh, to okay. a on yep. and and um, to the second half, and uh, uh, nothing wrong with it. I mean, acceptable in many situations, and yet, what I want is something different than that. Mm-hmm. What I want to see is um, the opening up to the great mystery, and. Um, it's so easy. We get so good at ways of responding that are um, uh, always, always the same, uh, even rote, if, if you can believe mm-hmm. it. I mean, you can yeah. say, I don't know. You can do something spontaneous. You can, you know, there's a whole series of like potential responses. And it, and that is starting to deaden what is essentially an alive process, an opening process. So, so um, I guess one thing that as I've gone on, and I'm now over, teaching over 10 years, but I'm, I'm more spontaneous and more willing to say, no, nah, I don't think so. Man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's keep going with that one. And, yeah. and, um, um, I think the job of the teacher, you know, is not to tell people what to do Mm -hmm. um, in Zen. The job of the teacher is actually to help people um, stand on their own feet and um, be willing to um, respond completely as their life circumstances um, require of them. Um, So we're not fostering a dependence. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather an independence, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I met with my teacher on um, Wednesday and um, gave her an answer that, you know, I've heard this many times. And I love actually how she says it. She goes, mm, nope. Well, you know, in the old days, we used to have a little bell. We could just ring the little bell. <laughs> just ring. Uh, it's kind of like you know, up or down. But, but yeah. uh, <laughs> on Zoom, you can just say, you know, keep working. Keep on working. That. <laughs> More practice is necessary. Keep on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I I also wanted to talk a little bit about your uh, not, well, you you say non Schwan uh, kills the cat non. Um, Nanchuan kills the cat. What I loved was you went through a number of different commentaries, and it was almost like this place of, oh, I used to think this about this, or and you you talked about how a lot of teachers really kind of 
are in a different place on this particular one. But then you had this line, which I I was actually lying down as, as I was listening to it. And you said, every teacher both kills and, oh wait, I think I wrote it down wrong now that I'm looking at it. Every teacher both kills and gives life. And I wonder if you can say what you mean by that. And maybe let's set up the koan for people who don't, aren't so familiar with it. So I, this is not a simple thing, but, but um, <laughs> um, this particular koan is argued about quite a bit. Mm. Um, and uh, this uh, older teacher, Nan Chuan, um, uh, came upon the, the classic presentation is that he came upon the the monks of the Eastern Hall and the Western Hall arguing about a cat, and it was probably the cat as a monastery. And, you know, you can imagine that the cat has the Buddha nature, the cat doesn't have the Buddha nature, whatever. Uh, But anyway, he grabs the cat, holds it up, uh, grabs a sharp uh, kitchen knife, and in the depictions of this koan in, say, Japanese scrolls and so forth, sometimes the knife is absolutely huge there's a scrawny cat with huge eyes and then there's this absolutely huge knife and he says uh, if you can say a word of zen i will spare the cat and um they are absolutely struck dumb can't do a thing can't say anything and he kills the cat so for dharma students especially um, those who are very literal regarding the precepts. Mm-hmm. How could this master, you know, kill the cat? Mm-hmm. What is meant by killing the cat? You know, where has the life of that cat gone? And what is the life of that cat? How would you save the cat? What is it to save the cat? So that's the conundrum of this koan. And uh, and it's a very famous koan because it's so provocative. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there are great masters, uh, great teachers of our, our time and of recent times who have seen this as a uh, sort of a play of the absolute and the relative but you know that's killing the cat too, <laughs> and and uh, and then uh, and I forgot to say that later on, um, the main disciple of Nanchuan comes comes back to the monastery and and hears all about it and puts his sandal on his head and walks out, which is a apparently a, a way that you express mourning, and so you're supposed to be able to to reply to that too, ex- uh, express that too, so. In Zen language, when we kill, uh, that there is, uh, we are, it's the sword of manjusri. It's, it's cutting in one. It's killing delusion. Um, the fundamental delusion is self and other. It's separation. So it's, it's killing that, letting everything fall to rest. And in, um, uh, in bringing to life, often the, the analogy there is that, that everything is born that there is a you know a table a man a woman a, a blue cup you know everything just exactly as it is and both are true of course there's nothing at all 
no life or death, no cat, no Zen master. And at the same time, um, you know, he was 83 years old and 5'5 and was wearing an old black robe, you know. So both are true at the same time. So, so each of us kills and gives life in every second. And, and that's actually this instantaneous birth and death that we live in, you know, over and over and over again. I don't know if I've addressed your question. No, I, I just, the, that line, every teacher both kills and gives life. So a good teacher is supposed to be like a thief who takes it away and takes it away and takes it away and takes it away. And at the same time in doing that, um, you know, you're expressing this great confidence in people, in that person's capacity to realize themselves and to um, be able to stand on their own feet. It's, it's, yeah. It's it's more than any other, you know, so I've been running this podcast for over a year now, and more than any other koan, it's this one that keeps coming back. Every once in a while, people mention Moo, but it's actually this one uh-huh. that yeah. seems to just have this resonance with, and and I guess for me, the reason I, brought these two up and just in terms of how you were presenting the material in your tissue, you know, it's, it seems from my perspective, like we are being asked to respond, like, how are, how are you going to answer? You know, what's the answer? Yes. I mean, I think that's it. How are we going to answer? And there's no one answer. You know, there's no one response. And yet, if we if we respond in a half-hearted or um, you know without sincerity, we'll we'll miss it, you know. And the the purpose of these these you know these koans are I think we can get very attached to them just in terms of like. Oh, we're moving along the path. This is the measurement. I'm at mile marker 55 or, you know, whatever. But ultimately they're, well, hopefully I see them as they're training me to give an answer when I'm in the world that, you know, the cat is never going to appear for me, but something else is going to appear for me. You know the cat is constantly. Well, that's what I—that's what I mean. Like the the literal the literal cat is never. Nobody's ever going to hold of a cat with a knife. But the you know if I'm working that, then I know what that is elsewhere. Yeah, we're we're constantly faced with situations where there's no right answer, where where uh, no matter what we do, we may cause harm. Right. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, and and we we need to weave our way there. I think also one reason why this koan is so it, it's uh, the fact that it's so provocative is so helpful for people is because it really gets it really feels uh, sort of at the nitty gritty um, place where 
you know, you could say the rubber meets the road, you know, where, where we really bump up against things. And, uh, I, I think that's how we often experience our life. And, and of course, that's the translation of dukkha. It's that, that, that grinding, that grinding quality, that sense of, of being off, of not being quite right. Um, and how do we live right there in that place? You know, and do we have the, uh, courage to die over and over and over again? Because, uh, that's really what, what birth and death is about. You know, it's not just about um, showing up in front of your teacher with, with something you thought of last week. It's about um, being willing to have a, a hard conversation with somebody where, when you really care what the outcome is, that it's not easy you know, or to apologize or, you know, all the various things that happen to us as human beings or to, to, um, um, I was, I worked for many years as a, a physician. And so, you know, at one point I was rounding in three hospitals and, and two ICUs. And there were many, many situations where I, I never knew whether, um, what the outcome would be of a decision that I had made. And yet I had to act, you know, and uh, do my best. And is there a way that you think that your koan training influenced your behavior as a doctor? Or is there a specific example? Oh, I don't know about that. I would just... Um, you know, it's interesting. I, we haven't talked about my, my past, but I was, um, at the Rochester Zen Center and went to medical school, um, in those days, kind of late, I was 26 and then had two kids while I was in medical school. Um, <laughs> and so I know <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> kind of going for it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and then I did a residency. So, so uh, and and I had practiced really hard for some ten years, and then went through this quite a long period of uh, probably twelve, thirteen years, where I did almost no formal practice at all. But this issue of uh, sort of being willing to just enter there, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, as a uh, with everything you have. Uh, that was my practice during that time. And it's really interesting because I went, when I then at some point went back to being, um, doing more formal Zen practice, it was so smooth. It was just like there was no, there was no difference. And that's why I don't really see lay life as a barrier to Zen practice mm-hmm. or to koan practice because it's, it's, it, when you're uh, a doctor, when it's, uh, 11.30 at night and you're having hard conversations with somebody that might die that night, that's your practice. That's mm-hmm. it. That's it. It's totally it. Um, there's no, there's no separation. There's no problem. It's just, it's kind of this, uh, smooth quality. I'm, um, 
I know this is an audio, but I'm making a, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'm making a movement as if I was a fish swimming. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like that. You know, you just you just swim in those waters. Um, and so, uh, in that sense, yes, I think so. Um, but but you know, people who do shikantaza, who really do shikantaza, mm-hmm. are really totally with each second, each moment. It's really no different. It's the same. Yeah. And the sangha that you that you teach in, yeah, um, they do. You have people who are in the sort of it's in the koan path, I guess, or use koans, and also people who do shikantaza, who I'm assuming don't bother with the koan path. I wouldn't say don't bother with it, but I, I think that that uh, koan path is um, really appealing to particular people. Mm-hmm. And not at all to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it just depends on what's right for that person, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that here at the Cambridge Zen Center. There's some people who, you know, I personally love them. Uh, but there are other people who they just loathe them. But they're kind of required to do them here. And oh, they, no, we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And so, but, it, you know, that's the tradition over here, right? And so it's... Yeah. Um, they they're like oh here we go <laughs> but but i would say but i would say this you know for mm-hmm. people who are doing um doing shikantaza or or even breath practice mm-hmm. i mean you can snooze away an hour <laughs> oh i have snoozed away hours <laughs> we all have yeah. and um you know so so there is still that quality of um um uh, i guess really showing up for your practice, mm-hmm. I guess I would say. Now, you said something funny to me when we were just getting ready for this call. Uh-huh. And I hope this is okay. Um, but you were like, I'm not a very good Zen student, or I wasn't. <laughs> and I, I wonder, well, I, I wanted to throw that in because I think that is also helpful for people who are practicing. Well, I, yeah, I... I I think that when we first start out, the things that are so important to us are, can we sit still? Can we sit in a position that looks like a good Zen position? Um, and then how is our mind? You know, there are some people who just very easily, when they come to Zen, are sitting in quarter lotus, half lotus. Uh, they look completely still. They look like they're just little Buddhas. Mm-hmm. And then you talk to them and you find out uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the real truth, which is they're, they're struggling just like anybody else. But at the beginning, we all are, are focusing on those aspects of the form. Mm-hmm. I was somebody who could, that, who had a lot of trouble sitting, um, in uh, those postures, it took me a long time to sit cross cross legged. Well, um, I had a huge amount of pain. You know, where the last maybe ten minutes of a round, I was just going, "Okay, ring, mm-hmm. ring, ring." <laughs> you know, and 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 I was squirmy. I, I have to say that I was restless. Had a lot of restlessness um, for probably the first. I hate to say this, but maybe twenty years of practice. Mm-hmm. It took a long time for me to really, really understand what it meant to sit still. And I only say this because um, that is not the most important thing. Many people who sit very well, 
they're they practice for a little while and then they're gone and they're doing something else. It's sort of been there, done that. And um, what is most important is this desire to really uh, to somehow realize themselves and whatever that means to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is an unmistakable quality and it's really precious. And it turns out that our difficulties turn out to have been great helps to us. Um, but it takes a while before we see that that's the case. People for whom practice is very, very easy often don't continue to practice. Many, many people who uh, practice a long time have to go through difficulties in their practice. And it's through going through those difficulties that they start to get real clear about what they're doing and why they're doing it, I think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's true. I, I've also been at a number of different Zen centers and several different lineages. And so I sometimes get confused about the forms. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't see them, you know, I, I realize mm-hmm. now that a lot of things that, that we think of as the Dharma are really the, you know, the particular teaching of that lineage line. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, um, I hope that people are not discouraged if they struggle with some of these basic things. Even uh, the ability to count to 10. You know, some people can't count to 10. They can only get to five. But if they really get to five, if they really get to one and really do one, that's it, you know? Hmm. And I wasn't a fast sense student either, you know? It took me a long time with my first koan. Uh, I, I find that some People also uh, imagine when they they take up a koan like Mu, they think, well, you know, a few sessions and I'll be there and, you know, <laughs> it's going to be great. And, you know, I was years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what I've seen over time is that nothing is wasted in your practice life. Um, if it goes smooth and fast for you, that's great, but you'll still have to keep going and and to uh, go deeper and people for whom it takes a long time it's just uh, exacting uh, over years and years and years then when you see you really see and you're you're pretty clear about it you're not just saying that to get this (laughs) no i'm not i'm saying it because it's true because that's what i've seen yeah yeah in other words, our practice is always this moment. We can only practice in this moment. Mm-hmm. That's, and so it's not really a question of a long time or a short time. Mm. There was another line that you had in one of your Tesha where, uh, and it's a little bit paraphrased because I shortened it, but it says, you know, koans do not ignore the rules of uh, moral or ethical behavior, nor do they promote them. The purpose of a koan is to liberate us from the suffering caused by the rule by which we bind ourselves. She's like, ah, did I say that? That was great. No, you did say that, and it was great. I Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't quoting somebody. No, uh, I, I don't know. think so. It didn't sound okay. like a quote. It really sounded like a live word, you know, like it was yeah. coming out live. And it it's... For me, that was such a beautiful illustration of what it was. Because not only 
like when you do sort of pass through a gate, I suppose, in a way you sort of see what it was that was holding you more than the answer is important in a lot of ways. Right. And then you recognize it as it arises mm-hmm. and you have to pass it. You have to, you know, work with that again, meet that again, mm-hmm. over and over again. I mean, the truth is, and you probably know this, if you, if you pass one koan or really see deeply into one koan, that's the same as seeing all koans. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, it, it is. Um, I, I, I believe you as someone who is. Well, uh, the reason why I say that is because you can, you can sort of skim through these mm-hmm. on, on a sort of a more superficial level. Mm-hmm. But someone who really deeply sees into a particular koan, for some reason, that koan just speaks to them mm-hmm. and really gets into their gut, mm-hmm. then uh, it's worth uh, digesting it completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to use a little phrase. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. It's, it is, it is like, there are definitely some koans that are more meaningful, like, after, you know, if I, you know, pass one, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I've had that experience of like, Okay. Whereas others were, I still remember where I was when I wasn't actually in an interview, but Nam Chom's cat appeared as a, like a, oh, 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 you know, and then I went into the interview room and was able to give an answer that was accepted. But um, it was this, I was actually petting a cat, <laughs> oddly enough, <laughs> this cat that was around the corner from us. Um but there's some that I don't remember at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that one, I... And there are some that actually are koans of life that we see very, very differently at one point um, in our life, and our practice, and then maybe 20 years later, we see it entirely new. And I, for me, um, Yakujo and a Fox, and I think I... Told I didn't you about listen that to one. that one. Yeah, I didn't. I saw that. that. That's one listen. that I saw um, very differently when I was a young person, and that I see, I suppose, um, in a much more straightforward way now. Oh, interesting. So, so uh, those are the ones that I kind of call koans for life. Mm-hmm. You know, you never pass them; you continue mm-hmm. to work on them. Yeah, I mean, I've in some of your test shows, you've talked about moo, like, and then you just come back to moo, and then you're just back at moo. <laughs> well, many people work on moo, you know, their whole life. Uh, there's a story that I love about um, some old Japanese roshi who fell into an icy lake um, as an older man and started yelling, moo, 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 you know. <laughs> and you could totally see it, you know. <laughs> So, you know, uh, we have talked a lot about koans, but but I've come to see that over um, over a long time of practice now, and I'm I had some long periods where I didn't practice formally, you know, for maybe over ten years or so. Um, 
But altogether, it's been, I think, around 50 years, something like that. So that's a long time. And what I've come to feel is um, more important than the, you know, what, you know, sort of the zeal or the energy that people get into with um, koan practice. The most, the most important thing really is, is to develop this um, very sincere, genuine heart. And uh, it's possible to do a lot of koans and neglect that. But if you, but if we don't um, meet our life, um, in that way, then we won't deal with other types of issues that are important for us to um, address. And that's a, a, a sort of a, a danger of the koan path that you can kind of skate through without addressing um, just the basics about um, becoming a, a grown-up <laughs> adult uh, capable of uh, practicing with the in the, uh, with the precepts and um, in an ethical way with other human beings. And so uh, koans are fun and they're, they're uh, deeply transformative. But more important is this other quality of, um, you know, basic, basic sincerity, basic genuineness. And... Um, uh, and becoming, uh, allowing the practice to help us become more open and transparent. You know, there's this lovely line from Ryokan that I, uh, that uh, Tony Packer used to remind me of. And, and she was initially a koan person. And then she really, um, uh, went into the non-dual traditions for which I have a great deal of respect. And uh, we didn't talk about that, but that's, um, that's a form of practice that I also find very useful and, and important. Um, and this, this line from Ryokan is like uh, the little mountain stream, I slowly become transparent. And so it's that quality of allowing yourself to become transparent. And from that transparency, that's how we meet the world. That, that really is the most important, Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Karen Ryuku Kemp encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Zen Center of Denver at zencenterofdenver.org. I'll include a link to the Zen Center as well as a link to Karen's artist page in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha, Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>